Welcome to Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. The introduction of the new investment screening regime will mark a watershed moment for the government's powers to intervene in corporate transactions. In this podcast series, we will be providing you with insight into what's driving the new regime, how it will operate in practice from January next year, and its particular impact on those sectors most affected. This podcast is brought to you by DLA Piper. My name is Sarah Smith, and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast series and will be joined by DLA Piper's competition, government affairs and sector specialists over the coming weeks. In this episode, the first of the series, we will be discussing the political context for the new regime, who and what is driving the pressure to strengthen investment screening both in the UK and internationally. To discuss this, I'm joined by Lord Gavin Barwell, Strategic Advisor, and Paul Hardy, Legal Director and Head of UK Government Affairs at DLA Piper. So, Paul, if I can come to you first, uh, what were the powers of the government to intervene in corporate transactions on national security grounds before the introduction of the new National Security and Investment Act? Well, the the powers are contained in a 2002 act called the Enterprise Act, which falls under the the responsibility of merger control and the competition and, and market authority. And what's interesting about this legislation is is kind of how little it's been used. Um, there are a number of thresholds that have to be passed before um, a matter can be ca- called in by government. It's called a public interest intervention notice. And if a minister wants to uh, issue such a notice, the public interest considerations are either that there's a risk to media plurality in the UK, or there's a, a risk to financial stability, or to national security, or since June of last year, public health emergencies. So if the public interest consideration doesn't fall within one of those scopes, then the Act is ineligible. And in addition, there's a threshold test, and it's a it's a merger control test. There are two aspects to it. The first is that the target being acquired has a UK turnover of 70 million or more, or alternately, that the acquisition will lead to a 25% share of supply. And if either of those tests are met, then again, the potential acquisition is eligible to be called in under the Enterprise Act. In June of 2018, the government lowered those thresholds for intervention in transactions in the military sphere. And then in June 2020, further sensitive sectors of the economy were added to the lower thresholds and and they include AI, cryptographic authentication technology uh, and advanced materials. But, you know, you have this complex uh, and actually quite established piece of legislation. Why then change it now? I think the kind of the facts as to how many times it's been applied probably answer that question. Very, very few transactions have been subject to national security or wider public interest interventions under this Act. So that's the existing regime, which, as you said, is uh, is little used. And and perhaps we've seen some steps towards the uncoupling of national security issues from merger control issues in the competition context uh, over the past couple of years with the the lowering of the threshold. So what is this regime to be replaced with uh, in the new year? Well, effectively, it just hives off 
uh, intervention on grounds of national security into new legislation and actually far-reaching legislation. Well, what the new regime does is it, it separates national security off as a separate consideration under this Act. The CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority, no longer has a role in overseeing how the regime is applied. Instead, the assessments will be conducted by a new unit within the business department of the, of, of the UK government called the Investment Security Unit. So there's a different governance structure. You've got a different kind of policing authority. You've also got no merger control tests anymore. There's no turnover requirement and there's no minimum share of supply thresholds to be met. So this allows the government, crucially, to intervene in low-value transactions, but low-value transactions that may be of, of real national security concern. And it applies to assets, which is distinct from merger control concept of two or more enterprises ceasing to be distinct. And again, significantly, whereas the, the Enterprise Act regime was voluntary, under the, the NSI Act, a hybrid model is established in which there will actually be mandatory notification requirements in certain specified sectors and voluntary notifications for all other acquisitions. And one last point is that how often do we think this regime will be used by the UK government to intervene in any form of national security acquisitions? What's interesting is the government's given us an indication of that answer because in its impact assessment, it assessed that the new regime will generate about 1,000 to 1,800 transactions being notified per mm-hmm. per year. And you've, if you think we've had about 10 since 2002, this is a brand new regime that's going to be used um, far more far more commonly than, it, than in the past. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it really is a sea change. And that estimate from government of how many transactions they think will be reviewed each year, many, many commentators and practitioners have suggested that's a gross underestimate because... Uh, because of the mandatory nature of the regime and the potential penalties imposed for for failure to file. The expectation is that, in fact, business will take quite a conservative approach uh, to interpreting the rules, and and there may well be many more notifications even than that, at least to begin with. So we've seen this renewed focus on on investment screening internationally and in the UK for, for several years now. What have been some of the key policy milestones and developments in this area over those recent years that have led us to this point? I can take this sort of more shortly, but there's been a kind of an increasing crescendo of concern over foreign direct investment in the UK that might undermine uh, national security. And I think it stems in considerable part from concerns over China's role on the world stage, China's role in in Hong Kong, the approach of, of China towards Uyghurs, and the concern over Huawei. But if we put it in kind of incremental stages, it was interesting and it's, it's great to have Gavin here as well to talk about it. But I think it was Theresa May who initiated the review of Chinese investment in Hinkley Point C in 2016. And that triggered a, a governmental review, uh, which led to a, a green paper on this in 2017, which concluded that there was a need for an independent foreign direct investment mechanism beyond the existing 2002 legislation, which adequately addressed new security risks. So that was, that's where the recognition for new legislation was in a 2017 Green Paper. 
this led to, as we've heard, uh, amendments to the the Enterprise Act of 2002, and then a, a further white paper in in July 2018. But in the Commons, in particular, the China Research Group, with with um, strong voices like those of Tom Tugendhat, have been calling for much greater government scrutiny of of acquisitions by particularly by Chinese state-owned enterprises so Mm -hmm. the volume on this I think has just slowly gone up over over the last five and six years. Gavin any any additional thoughts I mean we've heard there from Paul references to China being a a common theme what do you think are the drivers behind this new legislation? so, So the legislation as Paul was saying has been a long time in the gestation you know, this is sometimes government rushes things, but this one's gone through all the proper stages in terms of a green paper and then a white paper. So I suppose the question is sort of why why now, yeah. as it as it were. I think there's there's a number of things that are at play here. So first, as Paul has already touched on, there is a growing concern about China and particularly about the fact that it's now ahead of Western liberal democracies in some fields of technology and catching up fast uh, in others. So, you know, certainly the political context, people will talk about Hong Kong or Xinjiang, but actually the underlying issue is a concern about China either acquiring or acquiring stakes in Western companies and acquiring IP from that, which could have an impact on national security. And that's why there's no thresholds here, because actually it could be a small startup company that is doing something completely innovative and novel, not a big business at all, no scale to it, but actually the IP that sits underneath it could be hugely important. And Huawei, the the, the sort of row we've had in this country about the extent to which, if if at all, we should allow them to enrol in our 5G network is a really good exemplar of that. Because why did we have a problem in the first place? Because Huawei was ahead of Western countries that could have supplied this. So there was a sort of choice about do you go with them in order to adopt 5G as quick as we can, because that's good in macroeconomic terms, or do you delay until there are some alternative companies that we could use? And that got played out over a period of time. But you should definitely see this piece of legislation that we're discussing today as part of a wider package of which the Telecom Security Bill is another bit. I think there are three other things beyond the beyond the specific concern about China and acquisition of IP. So this is not just a UK initiative. Actually, a number of our Five Eyes and other international allies have strengthened their regimes in similar ways. And the UK has been under pressure from the US and others to do this. So there's an international context to this, definitely. The third thing uh, I would say is that the COVID-19 pandemic that has dominated uh, much of our lives for the last two years, I think has taught this government, but also other governments, the importance of maintaining domestic capacity in certain key sectors. So I think, you know, the pandemic is having an impact on globalisation. You're seeing, you know, a number of governments retrenching in certain areas and making sure that they've got capacity. I I was very struck a few weeks ago when Commission President von der Leyen gave her State of the Union speech that the centrepiece measure was about developing a chips industry within the EU, essentially, to make sure that it wasn't dependent on on others for that. Yeah. And then I think that the last concern is sort of something post-pandemic, which is this sort of wave of dry powder in private equity that is sort of pouring into the UK economy. And that, I think, has made the politicians focus on the number of these kinds of transactions that could go through in the near future and has provided a sort of hurry up to bringing this legislation in place. So I think 
China is at the core of this, but then you know pressure from in, from allies and also the the impact of the pandemic in terms of teaching about the importance of maintaining domestic capacity and the sort of wall of money that's sort of flowing into the economy post-pandemic as we recover. And can I ask you, do you think that there is broad political consensus uh, on the need for and, and indeed the scope of, of the new rules? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think not just domestically, I think internationally too. Um, I was looking at the news this morning and there was news that the Italian Prime Minister Draghi has just blocked a third Chinese transaction this year. So as I was saying earlier, it's not just the UK legislation, it's something that is being applied fairly consistently across most liberal democracies. But I think in the in the domestic context, if that's what you mean, yes, although that consensus is built on slightly different issues of concern. So on the one side, you've got this China research group, which is predominantly conservative backbench MPs who are, who are concerned about China often from a sort of human rights concern about what's going on in Xinjiang or what's going on in Hong Kong, threat to Taiwan. But they are pushing the government to go further on these issues. And then on the other side of the aisle in the House of Commons, I think the Labour Party is concerned more generally about this wall of private equity money coming into the the assets that might potentially be being snapped up. We had Morrison's as as a recent example And so I think wanting to have some kind of public interest test applied more generally, not just on national security issues, uh, on some of these issues. So I don't think there's anyone really in the House of Commons that is saying to the government, well, you know, you shouldn't be taking greater powers in this area. For whatever motivation, I would say, generally speaking, there's a sort of enthusiasm in the Commons that the government should be doing this. From where I sit on the sort of lawyers' side of the table, uh, there have been concerns raised and voiced, in particular, I think, about the scope and worries that it's it's overly broad and will pull in a lot of transactions that are completely benign from a, from a national security and indeed public interest perspective. The fact that the rules apply to internal re- corporate reorganisations, which just from a practical perspective may be very difficult to comply with. And indeed, possibly concerns about creating the wrong incentives for national investment and uh, sending the wrong message. So it's very interesting to hear that those concerns don't seem to be being raised in the Commons. So I think if you listen, if you read the government press releases, they're very keen to stress they're still great champions of global free trade and the UK is open for investment, all those things. Yes. Right? And they, you know, I think there's a sort of you know difference of emphasis here that if you look at the number of transactions that we covered, as you say, I think it will be very large. But the government do say in terms of the powers to actually unwind or block an acquisition, they expect to use that very rarely. So there's clearly an implication that conditions might be applied in in a large number of cases. Yes. But in terms of outright blocking something, they say they expect to do that rarely. Yes. And that no, that's absolutely right. And certainly the commentary we've heard from Bayes has been very pragmatic and, and reassuring from that point of view. I think there's some scepticism in the legal community as to exactly how it will be applied. But I guess we shall have to wait and see exactly how how things play out over the coming months and years. And interesting, you say as well that this is something that's happening on a a global basis. So the UK are not an outlier here. Um, And in, in that context, Paul, how does the UK's new regime compare with others that international investors may face in other countries? I think it's as it's as Gavin said, it's consistent with international policy. And interesting that the US have been pushing for us to do this. As you know, they have their own CFIUS regime. Canada has its own regime. Australia has its own Foreign Investment Review Board. I'd say most EU member states have implemented FDI screening measures. There's also an, an EU supranational framework regulation on this. And in many respects, there's a high degree of alignment 
in this legislation, which again is indicative that this is this is policy that is discussed between nations. You don't often get quite such a high de- degree of alignment in, in national legislation. So, for example, most regimes, if you look at the US uh, regime, the German re- regime, the Australian regime, they also, like us, use a hybrid approach. So it's part mandatory and part voluntary. There's a retro- retrospective period for intervention of five years, after a trigger event, and that's equivalent to the same periods in Germany, France, and Italian regimes. So again, that degree of consistency is is indicative that this is very much an international policy. In the round, increasing numbers of jurisdictions have introduced rules re- restricting foreign investment, or they've strengthened existing rules. I suppose where, where it gets, you know, clearly in, in terms of applying the scope of this legislation, there is going to be departures between states. And you were saying that there is concern in in, in the legal community as to the breadth of scope of this legislation. But it's potentially, the UK legislation is potentially narrower than other, other regimes. Germany, for example, adopts a wider definition of national security and public order and security interests which is a wider umbrella definition. And Australia and Japan adopt an even broader definition still of what is in the national interest in which to intervene. And that includes preventing significant adverse effects on their economies. So it's interesting to see how the scope differs between between states in, in, in how they apply this. Indeed, and that does seem to be a trend. And we shall see and hopefully get more clarity as, as the regimes bed in because investors and indeed certainly lawyers like certainty and <laughs> to know what they're dealing with. <laughs> well, thank you both very much. Thank you, Gavin and, and Paul. And thank you to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this first episode of DLA Piper's series, Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. Look out for episode two in January, where we will be looking at the legal overview of the Act and relevant secondary legislation, and what it will mean for transactions you may be involved in. In subsequent episodes, we will be taking a closer look at the impact of the new regime on sectors that will be particularly affected, such as technology and energy. So all that remains to be said is thank you very much and look forward to seeing you in the new year.